Let's take the Bible and turn to John chapter 11. I'd like to read from verse 53. And just watch, because I'm only going to read two verses here, and we'll skip down to the beginning of chapter 12. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Now verse 1 of chapter 12. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Let's bow together for a moment of prayer. Father, my request is simple this afternoon. I pray that you will bless this audience and I pray that you will bless me. I pray, Lord, for a special infilling of the Spirit of God. For the express purpose that today... I may be enabled from on high to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in the way in which you would have me to and in the way he deserves. From this precious passage in your word, grip our hearts. Draw us even now right into the very presence of God. Squeeze our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that as a result of this service and when it is over, we'll be more in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And our hearts fully given to him. This we pray in his precious name. Amen. It's six days before the Passover. According to the traditional reckoning of when the crucifixion occurred, that would mean if we backed up, we would be in the week just prior to Palm Sunday. That's coming right up. The Friday, let's say, just before Palm Sunday, just before the Passion Week. Jesus leaves the seclusion and the security of a little place north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is the place of divine destiny, and ultimately Jesus is headed there. But it's gotten mighty hot in Jerusalem lately. The Jews, after that miracle regarding Lazarus, hardened themselves and committed themselves to the decision that they were going to put Jesus to death. And so Jesus took that time until it was time, in Ephraim, a little place secluded, quiet, secure, but it's time now. But before he reaches Jerusalem, there's time for something else. There's time for a stop at a little town, oh, hardly two miles from Jerusalem, just over the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, a special place where there had been a special family, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. He had time to stop there. 
He's going to a special dinner. I like that, don't you? He's going to a special dinner. It's special because it's held in his honor. And it is an occasion of exquisite joy. Let me tell you why I say that. You have to sort of go back and forth between the different accounts. You find what Mark offers and you find what Matthew offers. Luke doesn't give us this, but you find what John offers. But when you go back and forth between these, you find some interesting details and they all fit into the story and help your understanding of it. But the man in whose house this special dinner for Jesus occurred, we're told by Matthew and Mark, was a man by the name of Simon. He's known in Scripture in those places, the only places we have any record of him, he's known as Simon the leper. We don't know a great deal about him, just that, but I think we can assume that he must have been a man whom Jesus had healed. Don't you know? Oh, don't you know, beloved, that this was a time of exquisite joy for him to be able to have Jesus in his home and maybe in some small sense to repay the Son of God for what he had done for him. After all, who else can heal the leper's spots? Only Jesus can do that. And I tell you, though, it's not my sermon this afternoon. I think that every Christian who's in this place today, myself included, ought to be a person of exquisite joy. For who else can cleanse the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone? Only the Lord Jesus Christ. And he realized that he was in his debt. And there he was. He had this small opportunity to repay something. There's some other people there. That Lazarus is there. If you look at the scripture in chapter 12 and verse 1, it describes him as Lazarus, which had been dead. There aren't very many people that can carry that description. Lazarus, which had been dead. Don't you know it was a time of incredible joy for him to be able to sit at the table with Jesus, the one who had raised him from the dead? There were just no words to describe the feelings he must have had. There were other people there. And they're true to the way you see them presented in the Gospels. You have Martha. She's serving. Every time it seems you see Martha, that's what she's doing. Lazarus' sister Martha. She's serving, helping to serve the meal. You remember the story in Luke chapter 10 where they had another dinner. Apparently this one was at their house and Martha served. You remember the description how she was cumbered about with much serving. And you have Mary, the other sister. She seems to be exactly true to form as well. There in that account in Luke chapter 10, she's sitting at Jesus' feet. She's listening to his word. She's worshiping, as it were. She's doing the very same thing here. The disciples are there too, and perhaps some other people that are not named. But I'm interested in this. As I think about these people presented true in their character, true in the gospel form that we seem to see them in whenever they're mentioned, I think of Lazarus the fellowshipper. He's described here as the one who sits at the table with Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. I enjoy table fellowship, don't you? But you have Lazarus the fellowshipper. And then you have Mar- uh, Martha the servant. And then you have Mary the worshiper. And of course you have the vaunted disciples. Interesting to me which one comes to the fore in what's about to happen. It's not the vaunted disciples. It's not the servant. It's not the fellowshipper. It's the worshiper. She's the one who comes to the fore. And this afternoon what I want to talk to you about for a few moments it really is just that simple devotion, that simple worship in a message that I'll call Mary, woman of worship. Mary, woman of worship. 
I present to you this afternoon three simple thoughts along those lines, and the first one has to do with the source. What is the source of such devotion? Well, I said you was a great prophet in looking in the different details that you can find, and I think I will have you turn with me. Keep your finger here, but go for a moment, would you, to Mark chapter 14. This little detail we cannot miss. Mark chapter 14. In verse number 3, it says, And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. Young people, look, this may not be profound on the face of it, but just bear with me for a moment. Before that act of sacrifice and devotion could ever be manifested on the Lord Jesus Christ, that box of ointment had to be broken. Now that translation maybe confuses us a little bit because normally we don't think of breaking a box. Really, in the original, the word doesn't emphasize anything to do with box anyway. It simply says alabaster for the reason that the ancients had found out that alabaster was the best material to take a precious ointment or a precious perfume like this and store it in. It preserved it. It was the best possible substance that they had to use. But when you start studying about what the customs were and how they went about doing this, what you find is, is ordinarily it was a flask. Usually it was a flask that had something of a neck, a long neck on it. So before Mary could ever pour this ointment out on the Lord Jesus Christ and manifest this worship and this love and this devotion to Him, she had to break that flask. And I think that there's something else very instructive about that. Once she broke it, I think by that act she symbolized that there wasn't any holding back. And there wasn't any turning back. You see, this was no Ananias and Sapphira deal. This was not one of those deals like you and I sometimes pull where we make out as if we are ready to dedicate ourselves to the Lord and we're, really, and we're ready to go all the way for the Lord, but secretly we know we've got something tucked back behind that we don't really mean to give. It didn't work that way here. Once she took that flask with its long neck, once she broke it, the deed was done. There was no holding back, there was no turning back, and by it she signified that she meant to take the contents of that vessel in their entirety and devote them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you summarize what we've seen so far, I think you come to the simple conclusion that the source of this kind of devotion is simply a heart that's fully given to the Lord. Now I want to get real practical with you. I find, because I and made out of the same flesh that you are, and I'm sure come from the same bowls of cloth. But I have also learned by experience, the moment you start talking and preaching this way to a, a group of people, they get nervous. Some do. Some get very, very nervous. Some preacher stands up in the pulpit and he starts talking about no holding back, no turning back, unreserved devotion, that which is given unreservedly to the Lord, and we get very, very antsy. Some of you young people are convinced that if you give your heart to Christ, if you truly surrender your heart to Christ, you're convinced that he's going to call you to hand out tracts in Siberia. 
You've got some distorted, I, I don't mean that in a castigating way. I mean the devil's done a job. You've got some distorted picture in your mind of God as some sort of a cosmic ogre who sits up there in the heavens and studies your life, knows exactly how to make you the most miserable, and then jots down by your name, this is what my plan is for him or her. That's the same bunch of junk that the devil unleashed in the Garden of Eden when he tried to sell Eve on the idea that God had somehow held back something that would have been good for her. God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God's knowing good and evil. And she bought it. She thought, you know, after all, I never thought about that. Maybe God did kind of chinch on us and hold something back. Young people, how in the world could you or I ever come to the conclusion that he who bankrupted heaven of its most precious possession in order to secure our eternal welfare would ever design any plan for our life that was not intended to make us fulfilled and happy. The only thing you have to adjust your thinking to is the realization that the only thing that will ever make you fulfilled and happy is the will of God. He made you that way. And that's why some people here today are fidgety. That's why some people here today are nervous because you're afraid that that's what God may do to you and you just haven't gotten to the place where you've seen it and realized God would never do anything less than the best for you. But I have a small consolation for you and for me because we do sometimes get nervous when we hear preaching like this. Here's that small consolation. Anything, listen, listen, listen. Anything that you give unreservedly to the Lord, He always blesses. I want you to think with me, and if you'll permit me to indulge in just a little bit of sanctified imagination, I want to present another account from the Gospels to you this way. One day there was a little boy. He'd heard about this famous preacher, Jesus. He told his mama, he said, Mama, you know I've heard that Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee and he is near. He's out there in one of those meadows preaching. Would you please allow me to go and hear Jesus preach? Well, you know, when they're excited, they're hard to turn down. And so his mama said, all right, you go and hear Jesus preach. I don't know. She might have said, I'll go with you. She said, all right, you go and hear Jesus preach. But she said, you know how those things can be sometimes. You better take a lunch along with you. So she packed him a lunch, nothing fancy. Five loaves, barley loaves, little things, not great big loaves of bread, but little biscuit type affairs. Five of those and two small fish. Well, he got over there to listen to Jesus and the day wore on, just like his mama thought it might. The day wore on. And after a while, Jesus said to the disciples, you know, I have compassion on the multitudes. I don't want them to have to go home hungry. They've been here all day. And this is a place where... We ought to take care of this. And man, I, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I enjoy the humor of the Bible. Those disciples, they are so human. They are so like you and me. And that this, you can just see the sweat beads start to pop out on their foreheads. There's the, oh, there he, there he goes again. He's going to come up with another one of these impossible things. What is he going to ask now? And Philip was there. And the Lord said to Philip, in order to prove him what he was going to do, but... Finally, they scoured around and Andrew was the one who came up and said, there's a little boy here. He's got 
a lunch. He's got five loaves and two small fish, but he thinks the way a lot of people think. He said to the Lord, what are these among so many? What are these, five loaves and two small fish? But they took them to Jesus. And then when you read in Mark, or Matthew chapter 14 and verse 19, a little small detail again, just like you found in Mark chapter 14 and verse 3, that Jesus took those loaves and he broke them. He lifted up his eyes and he gave thanks and then he broke those loaves. And men and women, 5,000 men beside the women and the children were fed that day. And there were 12 basketfuls of the fragments left over. One for each of the disciples that weren't so sure to take home as a memento. I tell you, there isn't anything that you can give to the Lord without reservation but what he doesn't bless it. And he doesn't use it. I really had not included this as a part of my message originally, but yesterday I went to the bookstore and I was scouring around because I have always enjoyed the Chancellor's poetry. And I was looking for the best thing to take home and I found rhyme and reason. And I was looking for something particular I wanted to be sure was in it in the anthology. I wanted to be sure that preacher's prayer was in it. And I found that, and while I was leafing through this thing, I stumbled on something else. I have to be perfectly frank with you this afternoon. I had forgotten it. I hadn't included this as a part of my message originally, but I read that thing. And I, was about, I almost lost it. Because I remember it from school. And God helping me, I would like to share it with you this afternoon. It's his poem, Broken Things, but it makes this point so eloquently. Five broken loaves beside the sea and thousands fed. As thy hand, Lord, in breaking, bless the bread. Men would the throng and emptiness have sent away, whose need was met with broken bread that day. A broken vase of priceless worth, rich fragrance, shed in ointment, poured in worship on thy head. A lovely thing, all shattered thus. What waste, they thought. But Mary's deed of love thy blessing brought. A broken form upon the cross and souls set free. Thy anguish there has paid the penalty. Sin's awful price in riven flesh and pain and blood Redemption's cost, the broken Lamb of God. Oh, break my life, if need must be. No longer mine, I give it thee. Oh, break my will, the offering take. For blessing comes when thou dost break. And it is true. Think with me for a moment about the second thought. The source is a heart that's fully surrendered to him. I want you to think with me for a moment about the effect. You look at this story, there were two immediate effects. One of them is very pleasant to talk about. We read the interesting detail in this account in verse number 3. Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. People were blessed that day. It was a blessing to them. The house was filled. And any time, young people, you give yourself to the Lord, there's just no telling how he may use you to be a blessing to somebody else. You just never know. 
This is the thrill. This is the romance of the service of God. Yes, there are trials. Yes, there are difficulties. But I tell you, the romance of it all is to know that what you give God, He will multiply and use. And sometimes He lets you see that. And sometimes He doesn't let you see that. But every once in a while, He draws the curtain back for you to catch a glimpse. Just enough to keep you encouraged. Let me tell you about something that happened to me about a week ago. I wanted to tell Dr. Bob this anyway, so this fits at this point. A young man in our church, teenage young man, caught me in church one Sunday and he said, Pastor, there is a man that I would like you to go and visit. Well, he was in the retirement center there in the town where church is. And uh, he told me some details. I said, tell me a little bit about the man. He told me. He got to know him a little bit. There's a project with his high school, a public school, where he's supposed to go by and make some acquaintances in the retirement center and do some different things. I'm not sure exactly what the extent of the project is, but he told him about me and he told me that he wanted me to go by and visit with him. So I found out this man was a retired minister. So that interested me a little bit then and I went and I went into the man's room and we got to talking and I, first of all, I saw some things up on the wall. He was there when the peace treaty with Japan was signed. Now that really interested me. I started asking him about that. And he had some other things, and we talked about his background and how he got saved and, 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 and how he'd preached. And he was a, ba- a Methodist originally, and eventually he'd gone on and, and become a Baptist and served different Baptist churches. I think he told me he'd served in the pastorate for some 40 years, and he was 73, as I recall him telling me. And he was telling me a little bit about his life story, and he was telling me that he was, I, he was engaged to a young lady to be married, and... He thought that he'd made it abundantly plain to her what his direction in life was, that he was going into the ministry, and that this calling was fine, perfectly acceptable to her, and no problem at all. Well, something happened, and her father died, and in his will, he left all of the fields and all of the property that they owned and specified to the both of them. And so she shared this with him when he got back. She shared, she said, and dad's left all this to us. He said, I'm sorry. He said, I thought I made it plain to you what it was that the Lord called me to do. He said, I'll give anything up for you, but not that. This is what I really want to get to. He said, then, he said, I went to Portsmouth and I heard Bob Jones. Portsmouth, Virginia. Now, this guy didn't know I was a Bob Jones graduate. I didn't know him before I walked in there from Adam's house cat. And he lays this on me. I about fell out of the chair. Well, if the battle thing up on the wall didn't have my attention, he really had my attention then. I said, you went to hear Bob Jones. I said, what year was it? He said, 1947, to the best of his recollection. I said, Bob Jones Jr. or Bob Jones Sr.? He said, Bob Jones Sr. I said, well, what of it? He said, I went to hear him, but he said, I talked to him. Afterwards, and he said, I told him this story. And he said, son, go on to college. He said, the devil wants to use that to be a stumbling block. He took that advice. He went on to college. The story is a little bit too long to tell, but it was interesting. The day that I visited him, his wife was sitting right over there in a chair. She comes one or two days a week to visit him. She doesn't live in the same town where the retirement center is. He had to go there for the retirement center. She's sitting there. She's sort of smiling as he's telling the story. 
Because it was through that experience and through going to that college that he met her. And she'd look at him and he'd look at her and they'd just kind of smile. And he remarked about the fact that this was the best woman. He said, God gave me the best woman. You know, it does take a special one to be a pastor's wife. You just don't know. You just don't know. I thought about that simple little thing. I bet Dr. Bob never thought about the thing again. How many thousands of people he probably talked with. But the Lord used that. And when you give yourself unreservedly to the Lord, you have no idea. But he always blesses. The place was blessed that day. But there was another reaction. I'm sorry to have to tell you this. I wish I could just talk about the nice things. But there was another reaction. If you can believe it, to me it's incredible. There was another reaction. It was indignation. Let's try to set the mood this way. The meal is in progress. Mary is very nervous because it is in her heart to do this. I don't think that this was spontaneous. This was not Mary's house. She had to have known that this was on her heart to do to have brought that flask with its precious ointment. So I think she was maybe just a touch nervous. But when the time was right, she got up. Now, you have to remember, they reclined in an oriental meal. And everything's just normal. They're talking. They're having a good time. They may be laughing, whatever would take place at the table. And she gets up. And she gets out this flask. And now she has their attention. They're thinking to themselves, what is she doing? She gets it out. She breaks the thing. The neck is broken. Now she's pouring the thing. She's pouring it on Jesus' head. Well, That wouldn't maybe shock them too much because it was fairly customary at a feast like this or when a guest would come, especially a guest of honor, to anoint the head. But now she's moving down and she's pouring it on Jesus' feet. Now she's uncovering her head. She's letting her hair down. Jewish women didn't normally do that kind of thing. She's pouring it on his feet. Now she's taking her hair. She's wiping up the excess with her hair. And there is just an electric silence in that room. They're very, very uncomfortable. And that electric silence is only broken by the fact that there begins to be some murmuring. And what they're saying is, what's she doing? What's she doing? Good night. Look at that flask. Do you know how much that's worth? Finally, the silence is broken by one of them. I'd say the guts, but it's not guts. It's the rottenness. To say what the rest of them, and Matthew tells us that even the disciples were involved in this, were saying, and Judas breaks the silence. And he says, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? 300 pence? 300 denarii, 300 laboring man's wages for the day. Take out your Sabbaths, a few other holy days. Basically, a laboring man's wage for an entire year was what this thing was worth that she gave Jesus that day. Who knows how that woman came by that? But they murmured about it. They complained about it. But I'm going to tell you something, young people. The problem wasn't waste. I'll tell you what the problem was. The problem was their carnality. The problem was her self-abasement. 
her willingness to stand up in front of everybody else and care not for what anybody else thought for the distinct privilege of rendering an act of love and homage and devotion on her blessed Savior. And she just rose above it all. She didn't care what they thought, and it made them very, very uncomfortable because they didn't have that same kind of zeal and devotion in their own hearts. Let me encourage a select few people that are here this afternoon. Make up your mind that you're going to live that way for the Lord, and you just might as well figure out you're going to be misunderstood by people. They'll wonder, why in the world you're so crazy that you would have go to Bob Jones University when you could have gone somewhere else, or you're going into the ministry, or you're going into Christian service, you're going to be a Christian school teacher, you could have made fabulous bucks out here in some other pursuit. I think about that from time to time, and what few gifts I have, I know this, that by God's grace I would never prostitute them on those things. Whatever he gave me, he gave me to use for him. And I can tell you, it isn't wasted. It might be small, but it isn't wasted. You could be misunderstood. You'll make some people uncomfortable. Now, I'm not saying you should do that intentionally. I'm just telling you that if you live for the Lord and love the Lord, that's probably going to happen. Happened with D.L. Moody. (laughs) I like this story. And I like what one author has to say about it. I'm going to share it with you here in just a moment. But... D.L. Moody, when he became a Christian, he had such a, such a zeal for the Lord and such a voracious appetite for the Word of God. And it seemed like, as a new Christian, every time he would come to the church that he attended, he'd have some new experience. I don't mean charismatic. I just mean some new blessing, some new experience from the Lord. He'd share it. He'd have some word of testimony or something. It made those staid old saints uncomfortable in that church. Finally, they decided that they'd do something about it, and they spoke to his uncle. I like the way one author summarizes it. His robust spiritual health and bounding energy disturbed their napping. He was just too much. So while they were sucking their thumbs, he was growing until he left them far behind. He grew more in a few years than they did in 30 a plan for it. Don't go looking for trouble, but don't be surprised when you find that the world, but even a lot of professing Christians, don't understand, criticize, murmur. They don't do it. Listen to me. They don't do it because you're wrong. They do it because they're wrong. And they're uncomfortable. You've made them that way. Don't try to be that kind of a person. But don't let it keep you from being everything you can be for Jesus. Don't let it discourage you. Let me talk about one more thing. Talked about the effect. Talked about the source. Let me talk about the value for a moment. Judas valued it. He said it was worth 300 pence. But his judgment was temporal. His judgment was carnal. Jesus valued it too, but he looked through different eyes. You see, Judas looked through eyes of avarice and greed. He was a hypocrite. Just like a lot of Christians are when they criticize you, what they're doing is trying to deflect their shame and their discomfort on you as if you were the problem. I think to myself every time I read this, boy, I tell you, there are a lot of modern day Judases. Maybe not in the sense of betrayal, but I think to myself, how many a politician uses the poor? 
How many a politician champions the cause of the poor? And who's really interested in the poor? No, most of the time, they are really not genuinely interested in the poor. They're interested in power. They're interested in prestige. They're interested in position. And so they cover over avarice and greed and a lust for power with some sort of a pious disguise of interest in the poor. That's what Judas did. Well, he valued it. He said it was worth 300 pence. Jesus valued it, but he looked through different eyes. He looked through eternal eyes. He looked through spiritual eyes. And when he valued it, he came up with a different conclusion. In fact, when you go over to Matthew and you go over to Mark's gospel, you find this. You just stop and think about this for a minute. He said there that what she did that day would be recorded in such a way that it would be mentioned throughout the church age. I remind you that the word of God is forever settled in heaven. This thing has been recorded in scripture in order that it might be remembered as a memorial. What she did that day, he set a value on. I tell you the things that the world highly esteems, God does not esteem. And I tell you the things that... God highly esteems, are very lightly esteemed by this world. And this simple thing that this woman did that day was in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, highly esteemed to the point that he mentions in his word that down through the ages it will be mentioned as a memorial. Even what I'm doing here this day is a fulfillment of what he said. I'm telling you about it just as Mark and just as Matthew do. Wasted, they thought. A lot of people will come to that conclusion. A lot of people will try to intimidate you and turn you aside from Christian service and will try to take you away from the mission field or some other calling that the Lord would have. And the whole reason for it is, just like that outfit when I was in high school that thought it was a waste for me to come here, I think they were like this outfit in this chapter here. They just didn't want to have to admit that one of their graduates had gone here. Ha, tough. Sorry. Wasted, they thought. Well, you know the story of William Borden? Do you know people thought what he did was a waste too? Do you know what he did? He graduated from high school in Chicago in 1904. How'd you like this, you seniors? This is high school. He was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. His parents gave him a trip around the world for his graduation present. Any takers? Do you know something happened? God works in some strange ways. At least to us, they seem strange. He went on that trip and God spoke to his heart. And he developed a burden for missions. And he wrote back home and he told his parents that he was going to give himself to prepare for missionary service. To commemorate that as a milestone, he wrote two words down in his Bible. Do you know this story? He wrote down, no reserves. Well, he went on. He graduated from Yale. He got a number of lucrative job offers, as you might expect. He turned them down. He went to Princeton Theological Seminary when that institution still believed something. To commemorate that experience of turning down all of those lucrative job offers, he wrote down two more words in his Bible. This time he wrote down no retreats. He graduated from Princeton. He got ready to go. He was going to China. But he stopped first in Egypt. Freaky thing happened in Egypt. 
he contracted meningitis. Within a month, he was dead. A lot of people thought that was a waste. He could have done all those other things. He got some fool idea going around the world that he was going to put his life into the service of the Lord. And now look at him. He's dead. What a waste. Somehow God didn't think so. When they probated his will, they found out that he had given his entire fortune over a million dollars then. That's a pile of money for the Lord's service and for the spread of the gospel. And he had written two more words in his Bible, no regrets. Hey, I want to tell you something. I love that story. I'm sorry if you know it, but I love that story. It speaks to my heart every time I think about those three two-word sayings. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Let me close the message by asking you to think about this. What, what an irony it was that if Mary had reserved this act that she did, for Jesus' funeral, I doubt anybody would have ever even looked askance. Right? You understand what I'm trying to say? If she had reserved this act of generosity, let's look at it in our terms. If she had had a part in purchasing a $10,000 casket or made very other ornate, elaborate arrangements, especially for Jesus, I doubt anybody would have said anything. But for some curious, ironic reason, because she did it during his life, they criticized her. Criticized her when there isn't anything too lavish you can do for Jesus. And Jesus, when he defended her, said, let her alone. For he says, you have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. As most pastors, I go to the funeral home more than I want to. I tell you, I've stood off to the side many a time. Many a time I've stood off to the side and watched loved ones walk up to that open casket and start to weep. I know sometimes why they're doing that. I know that they're doing it because they honestly miss their loved one, but I suspicion that in some cases when I see that, the reason that they're crying so hard is because they realize that the opportunities are forever gone to utter to that loved one once again three simple words. You know what those three simple words are? Do you know what they are? What are they? I love you. Do you have trouble saying that? Hey, I'm not trying to put you down. I think men especially sometimes have difficulty with that. So let me tell you another little quick story. Getting close to three years ago, my dad passed away. My mom was in the hospital at the time with open heart surgery. My dad hadn't been well, but I was there to visit. Not so much him. Nothing we were thinking serious of a problem there, but to visit my mom. It was a Friday evening. I was up spending some time with my dad preparing to leave. 
I got ready to leave that night. I walked out to the car. He walked out with me. And I shook his hand like I'd done any number of other times. Man alive, I haven't been home to stay in ages. It's always hard for me, but that's usually what I do. I put my hand out, shake hands with him, and I get in the car and leave. This particular night, I walked out there, got ready to get in the car. I turned around, I shook hands with him. I turned back around, I got ready to get in the car. And before I could get in that car, and I'm not trying to be spooky, it was as if something said to me, you can do better than that. So I turned back around. He was still there. He's looking at me. And I said to him, I love you, Dad. I hadn't really ever done a whole lot of that. That was Friday night. I got in the car. I drove back the next day to Pennsylvania. Never really expecting anything. My brother called me Sunday and said, Dad's gone. Men and women, I tell you something today. I wouldn't take anything, not anything, for what God did for me that day because he knew and I didn't. And I am so thankful that I said those three words on that occasion. Now I make it a thing, even though it's still probably part of the weirdness of men, I tell my wife every day, I love you. A lot of times more than once. Well, that's what this message is all about because that's what this woman was doing. When she went up there to Jesus and she anointed those feet and she poured out that ointment on him, she was basically saying, I love you. And I want to make a statement. I don't mean any arrogance or presumption by it at all. But I'll tell you, if right from the most erudite person in this room that I have oodles of respect for to the lowliest person who's here today, whoever that is, if you're too good to tell Jesus Christ today, I love you, Lord, there's something wrong, very wrong. With this, I do close. Some months ago, it was really more than months, I guess a couple years ago, really, I was doing some research for a message that I wanted to present at the church on some of the dangers and concerns with promise keepers. And I had a whole raft of stuff that I was going through. I came on an article, and in this article, it was talking about their carefully laid plans for a particular rally, and specifically with reference to the music. Now, you know they use a lot of those praise choruses and that kind of thing, and I'm not going to get into that issue, but in the article, the author was, they were talking about this, and they were saying that they intentionally, because it's a men's thing, they intentionally avoided and stayed away from a particular type of chorus, and the example they gave was Laurie Klein's chorus, I Love You, Lord, because they said Men wouldn't do very well with that. They'd be squeamish about saying that. Well, I say, foo on them. 
I would like to say here today from this pulpit, I love you, Lord. I love him with all what piddly strength I have. And I just want the grace to serve him faithfully till I die. I want you to feel the same way. Let's pray. Father, do bless to our hearts what we can get from this hour. What was of God, seal to our hearts and bring forth fruit from. What was not, blow away as the chaff. Somehow in the heart of every young person, every visitor, every parent, at the very least, we get out of this service today. May Jesus Christ be praised.